Hello and welcome to Brokenomics. Now in this episode I'm going to be talking about Japan. Japan is a proper policy nightmare so it's probably quite fitting that I'm recording this one not too long after Halloween because it is a it is a bag of horrors for policymakers. So the reason why it's it, it's so terrible from a, from a policymaker's perspective anyway is because it uh, well it has a very high and persistent level of debt that they are really, really struggling to inflate away um, for well for decades actually. And as we've previously covered in the uh, in, in in the former seg in the in one of the former brokenomics of um, you know a week or two ago, the whole game at the moment with policymakers is debasement. So I use the term debasement slightly separately from inflation because even though I consider inflation to be in ba uh, debasement. Uh, inflation in the common parlance basically just means that price is going up. It is, it is the symptom at the end of the process of money printing and liquidity injections and government spending and all of those kind of things. So I prefer the, the term debasement. But the whole game at the moment is that the, the, that debasement level of the currency in order to manage down the levels of the debt relative to everything else, kind of keep the show on the road. Japan is achieving basically the opposite of debasement. It's achieving... Um, well, it's, 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 it's deflation, it's, it's, it's disinflation, it's, it's prices, uh, prices going in the opposite direction. So effectively, your debts are, de your debts are growing in real terms. And well, I mean, it's not just that. Japan also has a whole other series of, of horrors um, attached to it. So, I mean, it has, it has an old population and it has a very um, low birth rate. In fact, Japan seems a remarkably sexless society for some reason and I'm not just making that up um, you know there's the, the condom maker Durex does a, a survey every year on on uh, lovemaking around the world and they, they persistently find that the Japanese are the least frisky should we say um, for whatever reason and I, I don't know why that is because uh, I think that Japanese girls are very cute indeed but for whatever reason um, Japanese lads are seem what whatever reticent or, or or maybe they're working too hard or whatever it is but the end result is is japan has a has a birth rate of about 1.43 per woman which is basically one of the lowest in the world um it's 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 ranked very near the bottom the net result of that is that they've got a population of about 126 million and it's going to dwindle down to probably something like 88 million um by 2065 so um yeah that that's not good i mean the, the the japanese we refer to boomers obviously as, as old people based on the baby boom the baby boom that occurred after the second world war uh the japanese boom they had a boom but it wasn't it wasn't with the boomers it was kind of more what we call the silent generation it was shifted back you know another sort of 10 15 years so as a result japan has one of the um oldest populations in the world and indeed a significant proportion of the population at this point has their you know has an age over over 65. An interesting um, snippet on that is that uh, Japan actually sells more adult nappies um, for those of you who are American diapers um, it sells more adult diapers than it sells baby diapers so um, yes that's not um, that, that that's less than ideal um, and the absolute worst thing is is that these old Japanese people are healthy. So basically they're going to stick around for a long time not working. So, uh, you know, Japan has very high life expectancy. 
and that's down to them having basically a good diet, um, a high proportion of um, protein, meat, fish, that sort of thing, and very little by the way of carbs, sugar, um, corn syrup, all of those things. So, so basically, what it, 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 and, well, and, and they've got a good healthcare system because obviously, sophisticated modern first world country combined with a good diet, uh, a culture of exercise, and what you're basically left with is is a disaster from the policymaker point of view, which is you're going to have people retire, and then not pay much tax for for a long time. Um, rates of heart disease are incredibly low. Um, a whole bunch of um, uh, cancers are basically sort of non-existent in the, in, in the Japanese uh, culture. Um, you know, these guys, they really need to break out those corn soups and sugars and seed oils if they're going to, um, if they're going to, if they're going to address their, their problems. You know, we, because what we, do in, what we do in the West is we, we basically fill our people up with, you know, carbs and sugar, basically cheap food that gives you a lot of energy. Um, and, it, and it makes you feel that, um, that a family is very affordable from a food perspective because, of course, you can, you can, you can stuff yourself silly on a relatively small amount of food. And it has the added benefit that it, it provokes um, a, a high rate of you know, cancer and heart disease so that basically you get to the end of your working age and then you, you drop off quite quickly. You know, that's, that's what a sensible country does with good policy making. Um, but Japan is, is, is not doing any of those things. In fact, just to demonstrate the point of how bad it is, when I started filming this, I immediately sent Connor down the airport to go and have a look at Japan himself and then come back at the end of this and tell us if it is as bad as, uh, as I think you will agree that it, it is going to be. Right. It gets even worse in Japan. Japan is virtually an ethnostate. I mean, it's not, it's not officially an ethnostate. It's not, it's not in their constitution, but it, it, it mostly is. I mean, their, their population is, 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 is very largely um, ethnically Japanese. They do have some other groups in there um, that, that they give them uh, a name. Um, oh, I can't remember how to pronounce it, but a, a, a Nayu or Raikuyen or, or, or something like that. There's, there's referring to their Korean and um, Chinese population that they have living there. Now, when I say, you know, that they regard these people as, as, as foreigners, I mean, these are people who um, have, say, for example, Korean background. They speak only Japanese. They've only ever lived in Japanese, and yet they are still referred to as, as, as foreigners, as, as Koreans or, or, or whatever they are, even though they are, um, like I say, basically effectively entirely Japanese from, from at least a Western perspective. But, 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 but Japanese culture is very, very homogeneous in, it, in its outlook and, and, and so on. Um, their language and culture, they keep deeply ingrained, I understand. I mean, Connor will come back in a minute and, um, and, and tell us what he found. But, um, but, but yeah, a strong sense of national identity. And of course, they're, they're, they're an island nation as well, um, a bit like Britain is. I mean, not that we have any of these, um, these outlooks, but, um, but we could have, I suppose. Um, they've got a strict immigration policy. They do have a visa program. It was one of the things that Abe brought in, uh, and we'll come to Shinzo, Shinzo Abbey. Uh, later on, but uh, there, is a, there is a visa program that they've established in more recent decades, and they do have a guest worker program. But in terms of long term moving to Japan, it is, it is very restricted. Um, yes, yeah, strong, strong national identity, strong sense of um, social cohesion. Um, so, you know, I mean, how, how horrifying is this? As well as having a healthy population that lives for a long time, um, 
they're also not doing the immigration, which is um, yes, which is which, which is obviously a mess. Um, that combined with the low birth rate, and and you can see the the problem that they're getting into. They can't just do the the line go up policies that the West does. Now, of course, the West has a um, a bit of a demographic issue as well. So, so how do we solve that problem in the West? Well, we offer um, good tax breaks for incentivizing marriage. We respect the family. We make sure that housing is affordable for young people. No, no, sorry, I'm, I'm joking. We don't do any of those things. No, no, we, we, we just basically um, use the police to bully and harass anyone who, who questions the levels of mass immigration. Um, but yes, so, so yes, different approaches being taken. Uh, basically, Japan is breaking all of the rules that the policymakers set out, which is debase, immigrate, and um, stuff your population with cheap carbs and sugars and kill them off uh, before they get expensive. Japan is doing none of, none of those things. So they get, they're going against the agenda on, on all of these levels. Um, how did they get into such a mess? Why has it gone so catastrophically wrong for them? Well, um, it all basically started with the Second World War. Spoiler alert, uh, they lost. And basically a process happened which as a result has led to a Japan which has basically remained flat for the best part of, what, 30 years at this point? I'll give you an example. Um, in 1994, the GDP of Japan was 4.9 trillion. Today, it is about 4.9 trillion. So basically, they've been flat um, for all of this time. Why do I go back to the Second World War? I mean, it's, it's, it's an obvious place um, to, 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 to start a, 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 bit of a, a bit of an economic picture. So I'm going to go back there. I mean, of course, there, there are going to be you know, a bunch of causes that are potentially going to be on that. But, right, so US won, and following the Second World War, the Allies didn't want to make the same set of mistakes that they had made with the First World War. What am I referring to? The first, after the First World War, the Allies were basically vindictive towards the countries that they had beaten. Um, and what it basically did is it, is it led to a significant amount of resentment um, and antagonism, and ultimately it led to you know, the despotic figures that you know, we remember from the, um, the, mid, the mid 20th century and some of the um, bad things that they did. So, Second World War ended and they didn't want to repeat the mistakes. In fact, what they wanted to do is they wanted to build Japan and, well, and Germany and other nations up. They wanted to build them up. Now, obviously, in Europe, we had the Marshall Plan, um, which was a program of assistance to Europe. We didn't exactly have the Marshall Plan in, in Japan, but we had something very similar. Similar. So um, Japan um, was, was, was stabilised for a long while. There's lots of um, rebuilding of infrastructure, um, lots of stabilisation for the economy, lots of laying the groundwork for, for future growth. And it was all done under the uh, supervision of General uh, Douglas MacArthur, who was the Supreme Commander of, of the Allied Powers um, out there in the, um, in, in the Asian theatre. And um, they adopted a new constitution in 1947 that established democratic government, um, stripped the emperor, emperor of political power. It promoted, you know, um, civil liberties, all those sort of things. Now, whether those are key or not, 
one of the key things it did do is it did have a whole bunch of societal reforms. Now, these were things like, um, like land reforms, which basically took um, these vast land holdings of you know, large landlords and redistributed that to tenant farmers. So basically taking, well, creating a significant middle class and by breaking large static systems into a whole bunch of smaller tenanted farmers, what you do is you incentivize innovation um, and productivity gains. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the opposite of the, of the brokenomics that, that Josh and I did with the USSR, where they collectivized everything. In Japan, it was exactly the opposite. They, they, they broke everything up, leading to innovation and incentives to invest and, and educate and all those kind of things. The US also guided Japan in uh, adopting a whole bunch of economic policies that would stimulate growth. Um, so, I mean, they, they did a bit of work about stabilizing the currency, which was you know, probably actually necessary given that there'd just been a war. Um, promote industrialization, encourage trade. Um, the Americans, they, um, they gave them security arrangements. So this was basically a, um, a US-Japan um, security treaty and that was signed in 1951 i believe it was it got revised later um, about 10 years later and that basically allowed a whole bunch of u.s military bases in japan and and the u.s um committed to defend japan in the case of an attack now uh, of course what that meant is that japan could then focus um pretty much exclusively on their economic recovery and they didn't need to waste any money on um, weapon systems and national defense and all that kind of stuff because that was being covered by the Americans. There was also a whole bunch of um, technology and, and knowledge transfers. Um, so the US facilitated the transfer uh, of, of technology, which was largely, you know, electrical systems um, to Japan to help it modernize and, and improve it, its productivity. Um, the US gave it um, access to markets. Um, basically by, by um, cooperating with it in a whole series of, of, of trade deals. And of course, because it had been for a devastating war and, and it's got this whole process of reforms going in place, what that is basically doing is sweeping away the established structure that they had up until that point, kind of resetting things and giving people an opportunity to adapt themselves to the, to the realities of where they currently were. Um, I won't give a, an, an economic example of this, but you can you can see the opposite of this in something like you know the dem democratic politics in in the U.S., where basically the Democrat Party is completely um, consumed and, and controlled, and actually to a large extent the Republican Party as well by people in their 80s in this sort of uh, gerontocracy. When you establish these structures that aren't open to change and have become calcified. Um, innovation completely goes out the window. And as you know, I'm all, about, I'm all about innovation. What Japan had after the war is a sweeping away of the capital structure, a sweeping away of the political system, um, a dispersal of powers, an in injection of um, new technology, new ways of working. And basically, it kind of reset it and allowed it to adapt to the current age as opposed to, you know, let's say um, Japan of the 1950s would have otherwise um, been controlled by people who had who had come up in in the in the twenties and thirties and and still thought of course uh, along the lines of a previous generation. So essentially, it was a oh, I don't want to say great reset. It was a um, it was it was a bit of a fresh start. Let's call it a let's call it a fresh start. 
And, and it also, of course, it just so happened that, um, and, and I, don't, I don't know why this is actually, so comment in the, in the comments if you understand why this happened, but, um, or, or, or what it is the Japanese that makes this true, but the Japanese seem extraordinarily well suited to electrical engineering. Um, and this was really the decades of electrical engineering. Funnily enough, it's not, it doesn't seem to be the case with software. So the Japanese um, basically had a very strong 60s, 70s and 80s when electrical engineering was the forefront of technology. Um, obviously, since the you know, later 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, it's been all about software. And for whatever reason, I don't understand why, but for whatever reason, the, the Japanese do not seem as well adapted to innovating at the forefront of technology as they do um, at, at electricals. But, you know, uh, you know, very happy to read the comments if anyone can, can explain to me why that is. Um, another factor during this period is that they didn't exactly embrace um, full on free market economics. Well, I say that the West claims to do the whole free market economics thing. It does it in practice because it has central banks and they control the money flow and therefore we basically um, centrally plan half of half of the transaction, the, the, the money half of this. Japan kind of embraced the situation. If you remember in a previous episode, I was talking about how you allocate capital effectively. And if you are going to have a central bank system, I cited the work of, I think it was uh, Professor Richard Werner, who was basically saying, if you're going to do this, if you're going to do the central bank system, you need to allocate the money that you're creating to, um, to productive uses because otherwise you will get that inflation that comes through, that, that, sort of, um, that, that rise of prices that come through. Japan actually applied this. So they had something called window guidance. And that was effectively where the central bank allocated cheap money to industries that they felt needed it. So it is, it is central planning, but once you've got central banks, I mean, you might as well, you might as well embrace it. You might as well do it right. Um, and so basically the central bank gave the banks in Japan a quota for the amount of loans that they had to make to strategically important businesses. So you would be able to read in a paper that the quota was, you know, this much for steel, this much for uh, rubber, this much for shipping, you know, this much for, you know, ele electrics, you know, whatever it was. But they basically set this level where the money had to be applied correctly to, um, well, I say correctly, according to the plan that the central bank came up with, which differs, as we talked about in the previous episode, to the way that we do it here, which is basically we starve small businesses of capital. We make the capital only available to large businesses. Um, the, the money that is available to um, smaller, um, smaller lenders, the households, kind of has to go on consumption. It has to go on, uh, we want you to spend it on buying a house or a car or doing a, you know, a, a, a extension on your house, all that kind of stuff. So we kind of apply, uh, we're we trying to do this to basement, but by, by pumping it into asset bubbles, that, that's the effective outcome of what we had. So the Japanese at least, they are doing central planning of a sort, but at least they're, they're trying to make an effort to, to make it right. And obviously it, it worked. Um, Japan had tremendous growth. I mean, really tremendous growth. I mean, in the 1960s, they were growing at 10% a year. Um, well, averaging out 10% a year anyway. That's an astonishing level of growth. If you, if you grow at 10% a year, basically you double the economy in just seven years. Um, and, and they were. They were, they were rapidly growing uh, the, the economy over that period. Um, the other thing they actually they could, they could do on borrowing, uh, I should mention, 
is if you had a good idea, you could actually just go to the government and borrow money directly from them. And they would. Uh, I mean, it's, it's part of the story of, of Sony and a whole bunch of the other big uh, Japanese names that we think of today. A lot of them, they just went to the government and said, look, I think I can do this. Um, I, th I think the you know the Western markets will buy this from us. You know, give me some money and I'll, I'll set it up. And that's the story behind a, you know a lot of the the big um, electrical um, companies out of Japan. Now, actually, by 1985, this success had really started being noticed. I mean, Japan was starting to be thought of as possibly the next world power. There was there was a lot of talk about Japan overtaking the US. Which, to be honest, would be difficult to do because Japan was, you know, a population um, of a bit over 100 million, and, and and US was was a bit over 300 million. So it was it was uh, it would have been optimistic to think that, but okay, nevertheless, there there was that thinking, and the US started to become very concerned. Now this is kind of the moment of inflection here. This is where it all starts to go a bit wrong, right? So the Americans start to get concerned about the progress of the Japanese, and in 1985 they basically get everybody together. And they say, look, the dollar is too weak against a whole bunch of other currencies, European currencies and the yen. But mainly it was the yen that they were worried about. And we want the dollar to be stronger and the, and the yen and these other currencies to be weaker. So they agreed the Plaza, Consort, uh, Plaza Accords, 1985. And basically the Japanese and a whole bunch of other countries, they agreed to sell their dollar reserves, which made the dollar cheaper. And the currency selling the reserves, in this case the yen, go up. Why the Japanese agreed to this, it is, I got to say, rather unclear to me. I don't think any country would agree to this today, but I suppose, I suppose the US still had a high level of influence over Japan. I mean, they, they still had a huge number of military bases there. The Japanese maybe felt that they owed the Americans, whatever it was, they agreed to this deal. And, uh, and, and yeah, dutifully, uh, the dollar starts to rise and the yen starts to fall. Now, this is good for Japanese exporters, of course, because, um, uh, well, no, sorry, no, sorry, it, it's, it's very bad for Japanese exporters, but it's good for Japanese consumers. Because now Japanese consumers uh, are getting cheaper goods coming in from abroad, while the Japanese exporters are struggling to um, sell those goods. Um, uh, in other countries. Now, the yen starts to rise, and the Bank of Japan tries to ameliorate this with lower interest rates. So, what you've got is you've got these increasingly low interest rates combined with a genuine economic surge that the Japanese have been experiencing for time, is starting to get quite uh, quite spicy at this point, the, uh, the, the level of success that they were having. And basically what that does is it, is it tips you into bubble territory. Uh, where and, and this is always the case with bubbles. They always start with something genuine, and then you apply debt, leverage, or excess liquidity. I mean, that's, that's basically what bubbles are. It's, it's, it's a genuine thing with um, silly money thrown at it. So, 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 so that happened. Um, and then, so, you know, by the time you're in the, in, in the 80s period with all of this happening, especially the late 80s, um, full-on, full-on bubble um, mania. In fact, I mean, it did get a bit silly. I mean, the, the, well, for example, the Japanese stock market peaked 
in the late 80s and it, it, it has never got back to the same level. Even now, right, even now, after all of the money printing and liquidity that we've had in the world, it has never beaten its late 80s, um, its, its late 80s peak. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. So the Nikkei became, um, the Japanese stock market, the Nikkei became hugely overvalued. Um, and the other thing that it went into was, was real estate. That really got pumped up. So at one point, and this is the famous example that everybody uses, is that the little, um, in, in Tokyo, they've got like the Imperial Palace, but it's not just the palace. It's like, a, it's, it's like three, point, three, three and a half um, square kilometers of land with a, you know, a parkish type thing with a, with a, with a palace and a couple of palace type things in the middle. Um, anyway, the, the Imperial Palace of Japan in, um, in the late 80s was worth more than all of the real estate in California. That one complex worth more than all of the real estate in all of California. Now, I mean, I kind of get it. I wouldn't want to live in California either, but all the same, that is a, um, it's, probably a it's probably a bit nuts. That's probably a, a, a bit over the top. Anyway. Um, they did get a bit of pushback from, from, from America. I mean, beyond the Plaza Accords, I mean, the, the, these concerns started to grow. There's a couple of things. I mean, one was um, a Japanese firm um, sold um, basically components to the Soviets um, for, their, for their submarine program that made the, the submarines harder to detect and therefore potentially putting american lives at risk and the americans really didn't like that at all and so that that caused some um uh, some angst um also the japanese sorry the, the the americans were basically seeing how they were being outcompeted on every front because well i mean take, take motorcycles for example um basically everyone in in the u.s was just buying hondas all the time because the motorcycles were so good and the uh, Americans realize well the American politicians they realized that you know things like well Harley Davidson was going to go bust so they started putting really big tariffs on um, Japanese imports of cars and motorbikes and you know the, the excuse given at the time was to protect Harley Harley Davidson to watch the full video please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com